so I've always wondered why more churches don't do the greet one another with a holy kiss. You ever wonder that? Like, why don't we apply that one? And depending on who you're sitting by, that's a good one. Um, so this series is, is all about the one another's in your life, in my life, in our lives, our friends, our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, um, people on the other side of social media. We all have some one another's, and I think we all want to be better at one anothering one another. We want to figure out how to relate and to relate well uh, to one another. And it's not just that we want to do that. It's not that we want to do that just because of us. But as followers of Jesus, this is what we're supposed to be known for. So we're supposed to be famous for. It's what our founder declared and commanded us to be about. So we look at John 13, 34, real often, a new command I give you. And it wasn't a new command. His disciples had heard this their entire lives. Love one another. The new part was the next sentence, as I have loved you. As I've shown you what it looks like to love one another, I want you to love one another by this, this one thing. Everyone, the Greek for everyone, you know what that means? Yeah, everyone. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus was clear. He was specific. He didn't give us a whole lot of wiggle room that, that the group of Jesus followers, the, the, the distinguishing mark of a church, this group of Jesus followers, their reputation in the community is that they love one another really, really well. If there's a secret sauce to the church, this is it. We're supposed to love one another. So whether your one another muscles have never been activated or they're out of shape, this series is a callback to the basics of one anothering, the way that Jesus taught us to. And last week, I said, this isn't just for Jesus followers. If you're not a Jesus follower, if you're not sure what you believe there, if you're trying to figure that out, you can do this too. But those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is what we're to be known for. It's what we're supposed to be famous for in whatever sphere of influence that God has placed you in. That you're supposed to one another, one another really, really well. And if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, if we don't remind ourselves often of this, we risk losing that distinctive as Christians. We risk making Christianity about something else. Our theology, our services, what we're against, what, whatever it is. As, as I read this week, we risk becoming lonelier, more disconnected, angrier, and we, we risk making Christianity about a transactional relationship with God. What a tragedy. It's not what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to be about one another. And so last week was all about putting ourselves in an environment, um, we call them groups, where you can encourage one another, where you can be encouraged by one another. This week, um, I want to talk about conflict, something nobody here struggles with at all, right? Like you don't, you don't deal with this. Everybody else deals with this. And I'm not just talking about the conflict where you have the day-to-day -day stuff in your home or your marriage or coworkers or all the bad drivers around you. I'm not talking about just that kind of conflict. I want to talk about the conflict that lingers, the conflict that lasts. I want to talk about these pesky little things called grudges, grudges. And to be clear, I don't want to swing all the way over to this side 
and talk about the deep-seated hatred where you're coming up with elaborate revenge plans. You don't need a pastor for that. You need a counselor for that, okay? I'm talking about, when I say grudges, I simply mean getting mad and staying mad at someone, okay? Getting mad and staying mad at someone. Some of you aren't ready to be this honest today, but that happened on the drive to church this morning, right? You showed up mad. And maybe it didn't happen on the drive. Maybe it happened earlier this week. Maybe it happened last month. Maybe it happened last year. But you're mad. It's, it's, it's the time where you hear one of your coworkers talk about you. And you, it gets back through the grapevine to you. And, and you get mad at them. And you don't walk by their office anymore. You don't talk to them. You don't even look at them in staff meeting. You're just mad. You're just mad. Happens, it happens on social media all the time. Somebody posts something, somebody responds to something else, and like just the blink of an eye, this thing is 23 comments long, and everybody's texting their friends or asking Alexa to help them craft a response to just really dig into them. It happens all the time. Sometimes that goes on for days. Sometimes the grudges happen for weeks. Sometimes it happens for months, but we've all experienced this, and and isn't it true, you know, let's get real honest in church, isn't it true grudges feel good? Like it feels right. It feels like they, they did an injustice to me, and so I'm going to get them back. They, they deserve this because of what they did to me. But, but here are a couple problems with holding grudges. Number one, they don't actually work. And here's how I know this. Because you're still holding it. You're still holding on to it. Started days ago, started weeks ago, started months ago, and it hasn't resolved anything. It hasn't cleared anything up, but you're still holding on to it. You're still hurt. There's no resolution. The only thing that's changed is the date on the calendar. So there's number one why it doesn't work. Second reason I know they don't work is because I have never personally heard a happy grudge story. Right? I've never heard anybody say, me and my best friend, we've been mad at each other for a month. It's been awesome. <laughs> I've never heard, my mother-in-law just keeps on trying to tell me how to parent. I can't wait for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Have you ever heard a happy grudge story? Have you ever been you know, happy with yourself in a grudge story? No one's ever grateful for a grudge. No one ever celebrates a grudge. It's always unpleasant. <laughs> it's always detrimental. We hold a grudge under the premise that we're going to get them back for what they did to us. But who's thinking about it? Who's losing sleep? Who has high blood pressure? Who has crockpot anger? Who, who is it who's distracted at work? Who is it who's having imaginary conversations? You have those? I have really good conversations, imaginary conversations in the shower when I'm driving. And you know what the funny thing is? I win every single one of them. Who is it that's, you know, yelling at your kids and kicking the dog? It's emotionally, it's mentally, sometimes it's physically exhausting. And what has your grudge done to the other person? Probably nothing. Probably nothing. They just think you're angry. They just, they just think you're mad. Getting mad and staying mad doesn't affect the other person. It affects you. That's the, the ugly underbelly of grudges. Is that the longer you hold on to a grudge, 
longer it holds on to you. The tighter you hold on to a grudge, the tighter it holds on to you. So deep down, we know, and I think, I think it's intuitive, maybe it's not, but deep down, we all know. Let's, let's move from just individual to, to, to a broader um, perspective here. We all know that the way that we're ha- handling conflict as a culture is not helpful. Like, we all know this. Like, deep down, we know this isn't working. Uh, and I think we all understand this, but we also feel a little bit stuck. So let's explore that a little bit. Most of us have spent our lives developing a habit that, that, that just it is dangerous when it comes to grudge. It, it elongates. It makes anger sustained rather than diffused. It's a habit that almost ensures conflict is going to turn into a grudge. And until we as individuals change this habit, we're going to have a very difficult time having the relationships we're hoping for the, the national dialogue and sense of unity we're eager for, and even the personal peace that we long for. But, but just to take it a little bit further, church, until we change this habit, we're never going to be known for what our Savior died for. We're never going to be, it's impossible. It's not just difficult. It's impossible to love one another the way Jesus has loved us while indulging this specific habit that we're going to talk about today. Okay? So with all that in mind, I want to invite you to consider and put into practice an approach to conflict given to us by the Apostle Paul. I think it's a Holy Spirit-infused approach that has the power to break the hold of grudges in our lives, our families, our friend groups, workplaces. And and maybe it's too big for us to get there right now, but even in our country, I think it has the power to have an effect greater than just the people in this room. And it's right in the epicenter of Jesus's command to love one another. It's right in the epicenter. So we're in Romans chapter 12. If you have a Bible or a mobile device, and I hope you do, Um, and you want to follow along, Romans was a letter written to a group of Jesus followers in the city that was the epicenter of culture and military power and and political power of their day. It was a city full of diversity and division and intrigue. It was a city of Rome. And he said this to followers of Jesus in Rome. He said, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. The literal Greek here is think the same thing toward one another. Now, there are a lot of times when you read scripture and and it's hard for us to understand like what his original hearers heard. It is absolutely understandable to us in our day and age of what it was like for them to hear this. This was a nod to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Jesus wanted his people to be known for one thing. God, make them one. Unify them in purpose and mission, even though they were diverse in culture and background. The church in Rome was made up of Roman citizens and non-citizens. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, um, soldiers, farmers, all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and belief systems, just like our church. And Paul says to them, 
Remember what our Savior prayed for? I'm going I'm to flesh it out a little bit here. But let's live this out. Let's live in harmony with one another. Harmony is individual notes that come together to make something sound beautiful. Individual people coming together to, to form something beautiful. What does that mean, Paul? What does that look like? Especially when it comes to conflict. He tells us, verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. This is so un-American. Right? I'm going to do whatever I want, when I want, how I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. We're actually going to start a series in three weeks that, that deals with that exact thing. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now, for starters, it's kind of nice to hear Paul acknowledge that there are times when people do evil things to us. Right? Like, he's not, he doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. doesn't minimize it. He says, no, there are times when people will do evil things to you. So the starting point when it comes to living in harmony with one another is not get over it. It's not forget about it. It's not move on. No, the starting point is that you have a legitimate reason not to live in harmony with everybody because of what they did to you. It was evil. You have a legitimate reason for revenge. You have a legitimate reason to hold a grudge. I just appreciate that Paul points that out. But equally important, if not more, is that Paul understands our first inclination is to pay evil back with evil, to repay an offense with another offense. This is the habit. This is the American habit that I alluded to earlier. We have this natural inclination and we have this ingrained habit of repaying evil with evil. And it starts very, very young. When, when as a two-year-old, you knock my Legos over, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to knock yours over. You punch me, I'm going to punch you back. My brother punched me, I punched him back, right? You insult me, I insult your mom. That's how it goes. <laughs> right? Repay evil for evil. And as you grow up, that doesn't go away. Like, you don't grow out of that habit. We mature, our thresholds get higher, our revenge mechanisms get more sophisticated and veiled. But this, this habit doesn't go away. It just grows up with us. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, don't do that. Don't do that. You've got to break that habit. But why? It feels good. Because revenge never turns out how you think it will turn out. It never works like you think it will. It's never as simple as, well, they did evil to me, so I'm going to do evil to them, and that will be the end of it. It never happens like that. When you do evil to me, I pay you back, not with gift cards and massages. I pay you back with evil, and then you repay me back with evil, and then it's evil for evil for evil, and then it looks like this. That's what it looks like. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that's the anatomy of a grudge. <laughs> that's Twitter. That's, that, that is politics. That is, for some of you, your family reunion, right? That's the freshman girl's locker room. That's, for some of you, something that's been happening for days, for some of you weeks, for some of you months, and it's eating you up inside. You know what that isn't? 
that isn't the church, that is not supposed to be followers of Jesus. We're called to something different. To live in harmony with one another. When you repay evil for evil for evil for evil, you, you start building fences. I use my offense to build a fence. We build fences with our offenses. You do evil to me, I'm offended, so I just start building this emotional, relational barrier between you and me. And it starts out just chain link fence, right? Cheap. It's only three to four feet high. See-through, like it's not going to stop a tank. But it's a division. It's a barrier between us. And then you repay my evil with more evil, and I retaliate with a six-foot wooden privacy fence. This thing's getting serious because I don't even want to see you. I don't want to be seen by you. I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm just done, right? And then, and then I hear you're talking about me. You're triangulating with our coworkers. And I post a little Bible verse on Facebook and everybody knows I'm talking about you, right? <laughs> you're laughing because you know it, Right? More evil for evil for evil, and it's time for a 12-foot stone concrete wall. Not only do I not want to see you, I don't want to hear your voice. And now we're in a rhythm. Evil, you do evil to me, I do evil to you. You do evil to me, you offend me, I offend you. You offend me, I offend you. You trade offense for offense for offense, and you fence yourself in. You fence yourself in. And my question today is just very simple, but it is really aggravating. I've been sitting with it all week, so now you get to sit with it. Who's on the other side of your fence? Who's on the other side of the fence that you built up? What relationship do you have, have you walled yourself off from? What arena in life has been nagged by chronic fence building? Maybe it's only been happening for the last two or three years. Who's on the other side of your fence? Some of you, you have an entire category of people on the other side of the fence. It's not an individual. It's people who don't look like you. It's people who don't vote like you. It's people who, who have different values than you. It's not a person. It's a them. They. There's this anger inside of you. And the fence is high and it's long and it's reinforced. Who is that for you? And Paul, he suggests an interruption. He suggests a different way. It's like he says, I don't know how many rounds you normally go, but can I suggest another strategy? And here it is. Just leave a blank. Just leave a blank. What, what do you think you could put in that blank? With your ex. With your coworker. With the them on the other side of the fence. Paul says, for starters, I just want you to decide not to put evil in the blank. I want you to decide not to continue the cycle. We'll figure out what to put in that, in that blank later, but for now, just don't put evil there. Just don't put get revenge there. Don't, just don't put a grudge in the blank. But Paul, well, do you know what they did to me? Have you seen their offense? Have you seen the fence they started building? Mine's chain link. Theirs is like tank worthy. And Paul would say, I think he would say, this isn't about them. Look what he says next, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on who? Ooh, I don't like that. 
because I want to talk about them, what they did to me. But Paul says, if it's all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This is about what you do, what they do, what they don't do. This is about what you choose to do. It isn't about them. It's about doing your part to live at peace with everyone. He goes on. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Underline that statement, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul quotes God. Anybody want to argue with that? It's from Deuteronomy 32. And, and, and at first it's like, ooh, I, I can't argue with that, but I don't like it. But this is actually the part that should give us extraordinary confidence about this really awkward, hard, countercultural thing Paul's inviting us to do. He's saying, when we don't take revenge, when we don't repay evil for evil, someone far more capable gets involved. Someone far more more powerful than you gets involved. When we don't take revenge, God steps in and says, I will personally respond to the evil that they've done to you. Rhetorical question, don't answer out loud. Who do you think is better at revenge? You or God? And some of you are like, well, it kind of depends on the day. If I'm feeling it, <laughs> if I have my coffee, look out, you know? God is way better than you at revenge, He's way better. Okay, and, and not as in lightning bolts better. He is more godly in getting revenge. When we do it, it's ugly and it's imperfect and it's ungodly because we're not God. He responds in ways that only he can and it's way more effective than you and I will ever be. But we have to leave room if we're set on revenge. If we're set on getting even, there's no room for him to work. When you step into that void, you start building your fence, God won't work because you took over his job. You decided you could do it better. And and here's the beautiful thing. When we don't take revenge, but instead leave room for God to work, our energy, our hearts, and our hands become free to do something else. This is Paul's main point in the passage. I think it's the main point of for day. He says to the church in Rome, he says to the church in Topeka, do not be overcome by evil. When it's evil for evil for evil for evil, we, become, we just get overcome. In our marriages, in our families, in, the, in, in the, the public dialogue, in relationships, in our workplaces, our community, ultimately in our nation, we just become overcome. By evil, but that's not the only option. There's another option. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's, that's the other option. Have you ever seen someone's sweetness dissolve someone else's saltiness? Have you ever seen a hug dissipate an argument? Have you ever seen an act of service fall and icy tension between two people? You ever seen owning and apologizing turn enemies into friends? That's how you break the cycle. That's how you overcome evil with good. When it's your turn, you don't repay evil, you do good. 
and you start taking the fence apart when you do evil to me, I'm going to lay a concrete foundation. I'm going to do good to you. When you do evil to me again, I'm going to take the wood and start building railing and do good to you. And when you do evil to me again, I'm going to take all those stones I could have used to build a wall and I'm going to keep doing good, keep doing good, keep doing good, keep doing good. And eventually I'm going to build a bridge instead of a fence. You know, the funny thing is between bridges and fences, they're built out of the same material. Don't quote me on that because I'm not an architect, but they're built basically out of the same material. Same material, same situation, but they have a different function. When I was in Israel, you know what I saw a lot of? Fences. <laughs> Lots of barbed wire. Lots of checkpoints. And you know what Israel doesn't have a lot of? Peace. It's a microcosm. It's a snapshot of some of our relational lives. And breaking this habit is about building bridges instead of fences. It's giving peace. It's giving reconciliation a chance as far as it depends on you. And, and will it happen every single time? No, but there's a much better chance when there's a bridge than when there's a fence. This is the habit. This is the habit that we have to change. If what Paul is describing is ever going to be true of Jesus' followers, there's only one way to keep evil from overcoming us, and that's to overcome it with good. The, the most famous statement, at least in our day and age, from Dr. King. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. Let's be different. Let's be delightfully distinct by normalizing this approach to conflict, I, I'm, I'm inviting you. I'm inviting me right here, right now, today, whenever you're watching this, to turn your barriers into bridges. And listen, I realize it's a lot easier for me to sit up here and say this than it is to apply in real, nuanced, history-filled relationships. It's one thing to talk about it here, it's a whole other thing to walk out those doors and do. In here, it feels kind of doable. Like there's some motivation here because there's some, there's some emotion here. When you walk out those doors, it's going to feel risky. It's going to feel risky because when you repay good for evil, there's a chance they won't respond in kind. There's a chance they will keep on doing evil. And I think we'll just have to remember it's not about what they do. It's about as far as it depends on me. As far as it depends on me, I'm going to live at peace. And although it's risky, I would submit it's just as, if not more, risky to allow a grudge to sink its fingers into us and hold on. That's risky too. So it'll be risky. It, 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 it'll feel unfair. The other person is never going to deserve your good for their evil, ever. It will feel unfair. It's always going to feel unfair. But I hope you'll realize that it's just as unfair to let a grudge steal your joy in your peace. That's unfair too. So it'll feel risky, it'll feel unfair, and it'll feel weak. It'll, it'll feel like somebody's just walking all over you, and on this point, I hope you'll understand that this is not a call to allow someone to take advantage of you. No way. You, you can do good while still having guardrails and boundaries and protections in place. This is also not a call to let, re, to let evil run amok and unopposed. 
you can do good while still taking a stand against evil. Still being undeterred, unwavering, and even be loud about it. And, and we also have to realize the bigger an evil gets, the more nuanced and complicated it gets to overcome that evil. But I still think it's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's still possible. So it'll feel risky. It'll feel unfair. It'll feel weak, which is why so few people do it. It's why so few people aren't willing to do it. But if you and I will decide to be different, to implement a countercultural approach to conflict, I think we will discover a countercultural result, an outcome. So I hope you choose to do this. I can't force you to. As difficult as it is, I hope you choose to do this. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I don't think this is optional. I don't think we get to choose, well, do I, do I want to do this or not? I think we have to choose to do this because those three things, risk, unfairness, and weakness, are the exact things that Jesus used to defeat evil. Jesus risked everything to come into this world. From heaven to earth, that's a big step. First step's a doozy. It's a big step. He was the perfect, sinless son of God who died an unfair death. And you want to talk about weakness? It's what they said about him when he was on the cross. He saved others. He can't even save himself. What a weakling. But three days later, his strength overwhelmed the grave and sin lost its hold on you. Risky, unfair weakness is exactly how Jesus loved us. And then he said, as I have loved you, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. This is how they're going to know. This is how they'll understand that you're my followers. So, Real quick, six things. Six things that you can do to start building a bridge instead of a fence, okay? And we're gonna put them on the screen. Maybe we'll put these on social media later this week. Number one, go quickly and directly. When there's conflict, go to the person to talk to them, not somebody else to talk about them. Go quickly and directly. Number two, teenagers, are you writing this down? You should be. Be quick to forgive. Decide they just don't owe me. And it doesn't mean they get to continue to hurt you or that you continue to trust them. But when you're quick to forgive, it's amazing how much it changes your demeanor towards them. Be quick to forgive. Number three, own your part. In almost every situation, every conflict, you own at least a piece of the pie. And what if we were people who just said, you know what, before I talk about your piece of the pie, I'm going to own my piece of the pie. Own your piece of the pie. Number four, speak well of them. When everybody starts taking sides and runs to their corners, let's be the kind of people who vent in private, but speak well of our enemies in public. Speak well of them. Number five, serve them. This is the example Paul gives in the passage. Do good to them. Serve them in some way. And number five, or six, pray for them. Pray for them. Jesus taught that his kingdom people would be people who pray for those who persecute us. Pray for the person on the other side of the fence. What do you say we decide? We can decide. You can decide right here. To stop repaying evil with evil and start repaying evil with good and watch 
how your Father in heaven involves himself in that. What do you say we decide? To start loving one another the way Jesus has loved us. It's unfair, it's weak, it's risky. Who in your life is on the other side of the fence and it's time to start building a bridge? My guess is they're just as hurt and confused and exhausted as you are and they want to build a bridge to you too, but they're not sure how. What if, in Jesus' name, you went first? Let's pray. Father in heaven, this... Uh, we, man, we need this. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. It's not fun. But, but, but Jesus, we need your word to overpower, to infuse, to change us into the people that you've called us to be. So the people that are here, the people that are watching this online, would you help us through your spirit to live in harmony with one another? that before we start trying to live in harmony with people outside the walls, that we would live in harmony with those inside. That, that, that we would look for ways to build bridges instead of fences. And that we would just lay aside, that we would work through, that we would allow you to work through the grudges that we hold the ones that we walked in here with, the ones that we're going to develop in a week or a month or two years. God, we need you, and we ask for you to work in ways that only you can. Would you help us? Would you give us the wisdom to create space, to create a void for you to work, and then watch as you do? And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite Frank up and move. <laughs> I have a confession to make. I have a big grudge against all you Chiefs fans. I don't think there's a bridge long enough to make that work. <laughs> Start building. It'll take a lot of years, a lot of years. Well, many of you know that today we are celebrating 20 years of Pastor Tim and Jana being with us. I'm going to ask Jana, his beautiful wife, to come up here up on the stage and have Tim come back to the center of the stage because he just loves to be the center of attention <laughs> as he comes this way. Pastor Tim and Janet came to us 20 years ago this particular month, and when they came, they came as our youth pastor, and, and they did just wonderful work for several years, and then several years after that, they became our lead pastor, and I think you will agree with me, we have been blessed with great vision, great leadership, great teaching. Wouldn't you agree with me? <clears throat> I said this first service, it, 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 it's worth repeating. We need to thank his family that are here. They've been such a blessing and poured so much into these two to bring them to where they're at. I want to thank, thank you folks for being so gracious. Tim's always Always, always, always praying for you folks. You have no idea. He has grown so much in the 20 years that we have known each other and worked together. He has grown so much, and a lot of that also has to do with his lovely wife, 
She has been just right by his side the whole time. And you probably don't know Janet because she's behind the scenes type of person, but she's a godly woman who just loves very well. And she prays for her husband and her kids regularly. And I also need to mention the kids. They're great. Cole and Mason, they were born here. They're just fantastic kids. And that's because of these fantastic people. It's because of these fantastic people. Tim and Jana, we just love you so much. And what I want to do at this point is I've asked our vice chair of our board, Jacqueline Thompson, to come up. And we're going to lay hands on you guys. And we're going to ask you guys to stand for a moment. And we're going to ask you, if you're comfortable with doing this, we're going to ask you kind of like reach out and we're going to lay hands on these guys. And we're going to ask you to reach out if you're comfortable with that. And as Jacqueline prays for us, let's agree together. Thank you, Tim, for sharing the words of Paul with us. Um, And I invite you guys to share uh, this prayer from Paul in the book of Philippians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank our God every time we remember you. In all our prayers for you, we always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from those 20 years ago till now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out onto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We have you in our heart, and you share in God's grace with us. And this is our prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. 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 Pastor Jim Jana, have anything you would like to say, Jana? <laughs> no? That's surprise, surprise, right? Pastor Tim. Um, yeah, you, you already heard me talk. So when, um, when Ed hired us 20 years ago as 15-year-olds... Um, <laughs> had no idea what we were going to experience, uh, but we've had two kids. Uh, We've had lots of ups and lots of downs, but we love you. We love Topeka. Topeka is a place where I hear a lot of people waiting to leave. (laughs) Um, But Topeka is a place for us that we want to stay, and we have loved every minute of it. Um, The lady who's holding my hand has more influence and impact on you than you know. Um, and she's really uncomfortable. She's squeezing my hand right now. <laughs> but we love you. Um, here's the 20 more, I guess. So, well, we hope you. for more than 21, brother, very much so. Wouldn't we like to see at least another 20, folks? <laughs> well, I tried. I was doing so good, buddy. I was doing so good. You two are such a blessing. I told you this before. The first time I'll tell you again, I can never tell you enough. How you're such a blessing to Brenda and I personally in your relationship with us. But you're such a blessing to our staff. You're such a blessing to Grace Point. <clears throat> and, and we couldn't have asked for any better. Thank you so much for accepting the call that I knew you were trepidatious about taking. And for hanging in there all these years. It's unusual to see people stay at one church. Because you folks don't know it, but... Churches have a tendency to chew up and spit their pastors out well, and you guys are the total opposite, the total opposite, and we are very, very grateful for that. So on behalf of Grace Point, um, this is a gift for you guys to just to say how much we love you, and we're excited about what God has in the future. Thank you. So this is to Jana. <laughs>
I know who to go to. <laughs> uh, uh, don't bite the hand that brought you here, buddy. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So, folks, um, as you know, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Wrap it up. <laughs> as you know, folks, there's a place for you to put cards out there, as well as if you'd like to, Tim and Jan are going to step here for a little bit. Um, they would like to go get lunch sometime with their family, so don't overdo it. But please come up and tell them how much you appreciate them. God bless you. You're dismissed.